Well, as Linda mentioned, we'll be looking in Ephesians chapter 6 tonight, verses 10 through 18, as we know as the whole armor of God or the armor of God. Um, Many of us are probably familiar with this passage and probably have heard a lot about it, or maybe you heard very little, but you hear of the armor of God. But before we get into our scripture tonight, um, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this evening that you've given us. We do thank you for the songs that we have sung to praise your name and worship you as we sing truths of your scripture to remind us. And Lord, I do thank you for your word, not just the passage that we have tonight, but your whole word from Genesis to Revelation on how all of it is your word breathed out to us, the living and active word. And so Lord, just be with us now in this time. Hide me behind the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but when I was a student, my favorite subject in school was history. Um, That might have been because my dad was in the military, and as a lot of military men and women have, they know a lot about history, and they're taught a lot about history. And I was growing up, one of our favorite channels at the time to watch was the History Channel, when they actually produced things about history, not aliens, like that one time they had all that, but actually history. And one of the things that we buy my dad for Christmas presents was TV shows off the History Channel about different battles and wars, especially World War II seemed to be his fancy. He really liked it. Um, and I really enjoyed history until it always seemed to get to politics, and that's where I didn't really care for it as much. And as my mom said, you got to learn all of history. You can't just learn part of it. And so I've always been fascinated with history. I always enjoy studying it, and not just American history, um, world history altogether, and, and just fascinated how the things go. Um, And tonight, we're going to kind of be talking about battle and war, but not the battles and wars that we might be used to or you will not find on the History Channel or YouTube or anything like that. We're going to be talking about spiritual warfare, and we're going to be talking kind of more what we are to be doing during a spiritual warfare. There's a lot out there about spiritual warfare. You can hear a lot of people talking about spiritual warfare, armor up praying in the battle, and and different things. And then in the Bible, there's not a lot about spiritual warfare, if you think about it. It tells us who our enemy is, but it doesn't tell us much about fighting. And so tonight, if you've done the McChain Bible reading, you'll know that throughout this week, we get finished up Ephesians. And in the last chapter of Ephesians, you get the armor of God. And, you know, when you talk about wars, a lot of people cringe, and we should. Wars are not something that are glorious. I know a lot of Kids and a lot of young people think, oh, it's great to go serve in a war. But then when you study, you realize that war is full of pain, death, and destruction. Um, As technology has gotten better and better, we can see that. If you just look on social media, you could see and can see all the death and destruction that come with the Russian-Ukrainian war and just how horrible it is. And so when we think about war, you might be thinking of a certain area of history. You might be thinking of what happened in our country just a few years ago with Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. But probably a lot of people don't think about spiritual warfare. And that's because we don't see it a lot around us, even though it is before us. We don't see it. We don't see the casualties of spiritual warfare, though they're there. And so tonight... We are going to be talking about the war that we are fighting right now. And yes, as Christians, we are in a war. Non-Christians are in a war. There is a war of spiritual light and darkness going on around us. And not just in the United States, not just here in Gallatin, but the whole world. And so we're going to be looking into this. If you think about it, when Jesus was born, the forces of darkness attacked him. King Herod 
was, as we know, was induced by the darkness of Satan, and he was upset that Jesus was born, as the wise men said, the king of the Jews, and Herod was jealous. And so what did he do? He ordered his men to go into Bethlehem to kill all the babies. So as soon as Jesus was born, somewhere between when he was first born to two years in there, King Herod tried to kill him. And then it's quiet. We don't hear much. But when Jesus starts his ministry, after he is baptized, what happens? He goes into the wilderness and is in there for 40 days and is tempted by Satan. As Hebrews tells us, he is tempted in all sorts of ways. We get to at least the three major temptations, but he was attacked again. And throughout his life, you see different times when Satan tried to stop Jesus. And so if Jesus was attacked by the forces of darkness and by Satan himself, we too should be expected to be attacked. As Jesus says, whatever happened to him is going to happen to us. So if Satan went after Jesus, we should be expecting Satan and his forces to be coming after us. But this is what we're going to see here, that there's going to be a way for Christians to go through this. And so one of the things I know maybe you can't see it is I have a little figurine of the armor of God. It's one of the things that my wife got me a while ago. Or you could be like what my youth pastor did to help us and remember um, the armor of God that he had at his church. Actually, if you want to go ahead and share that. Um, that's at his church in First, Bapt- First Baptist Church of Pattonsburg. When he was pastored, they had that, and it happened to fit him. And so, yeah, he decided to put it on And when he was going through the armor of God. Um, I was not going to dress up like that. And so, you know, there's a picture. And just some background. Why do we have Roman armor when we talk about the armor of God? It's because the Greek words that Paul uses to describe the armor of God, he uses something that the people are familiar with, especially Ephesus. Ephesus is very familiar with Rome, very familiar with the Roman trade. And so he described the armor of God to that which they were familiar with. So if Paul was writing it during the medieval times, then yeah, to be the knights and all that. Or Paul was writing it during our time, it would be what our American soldiers or whatever the people he was at at that time. But since he was writing during the Roman time, this is why he put it on or wrote it this way as put on the armor of God. Even from the shield, we have shield in our English language, but in the Greek, it was the Roman shield. Same with the sword. And so that's why we always see the armor of God as Roman legionnaire armor. So we don't actually have to put on Roman armor. So don't, don't worry about that. But we're going to see here in our fight, and we're going to start in verse 10 with point one. It's not our strength, but the Lord. We look at me in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. And Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so one thing you know, if you study anything of history, soldiers have to be strong. Soldiers have to be strong to be able to carry their packs, their supplies, and their weapons. They have to be strong, especially when Paul was writing this time in their hand-to-hand combat, that if they were not strong, the enemy would overthrow them. That is the same with us. We have to be strong. Without strength, a soldier will fail. Without strength, we will fail. So does that mean that the trustees need to start building an obstacle course in the back church? No, because it's not our strength, but the Lord. So before we break ground, let's not do that. (laughs) We are going to be strong in the Lord. If we went off of human strength, we would fail and fail again and again and again. Because no matter how strong you are, we will not be able to defeat Satan and his forces of darkness. And so the Christian life, if you think about it, is not about us. 
The Christian life is all about Jesus and what he did and what he is doing today. And also with that, we need to think about that Christ has already defeated Satan. So it's kind of an interesting warfare we're talking about because usually when an enemy is defeated, they don't fight anymore. They're done. But Christ already defeated Satan. He was the one that crushed the serpent's head, as the prophecy said back when God gave it to Adam and Eve. To Eve, he said, your seed will crush the serpent's head and he will bruise your seed's heel. We cannot crush Satan's head. We do not have that power. One, he's already a defeated enemy. Two, we're just man. Only Christ was able to do that. So through Christ's strength, through his death, and through his resurrection, the battle has already been won. The victory is the Lord's. So we have that strength with us. And in the end, we do know when it talks about it in Revelation that Christ will come back. He will set all things right. And it is he who casts Satan into hell. It's not man. It's not any of the apostles. It is only he who cast him into hell. And so we know that day is coming. But Satan is still causing issues today for the Christians and for the church. This is why Paul talks about the armor of God. Now, as we're going to see here in a minute, Paul says, put on the armor of God. And here's the thing, as we're going to look through this, Paul is not saying that we need to go find this armor and put on it. If you are a Christian, the armor is already on you. Paul is talking, not literal, but he is using metaphor here, saying put on the armor of God. Again, he's speaking to people who would understand what Paul is meaning, that the Romans would put on armor. And and we're going to see this as we walk through each piece how we see that as a Christian, we already have our armor on. Now, there's certain things that we can do that can help us, and there's certain things that if we don't do, will hinder us. And so know that that as he talks through this, that we will see that he's not actually saying that we need to wake up every morning and put on a helmet and a breastplate and shoes and a belt and a sword. No, we don't have to do that. It's already on us. And so first we're going to see in verses 11 and 12 with point two, know your enemy. One of the things in combat is you need to know who you're fighting, their strengths and weaknesses, so you know how to win. That's the same with us. We need to know our enemy. And look with me in verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul says that we do not fight against flesh and blood. And this is a good thing because there are many Christians who think that they need to battle up, suit up, and fight against flesh and blood. They think that they need to arm themselves in many different ways and go and fight against other humans. That's not true. Unfortunately, you could see this throughout how Christendom, as they would call it, played out in the medieval wars and the Crusades. Those were called upon by, at that time, that the church at the time wasn't the true church, but the Roman Catholic Church, and they called for wars. And sometimes they went against each other, which was horrible. In this day and age, we don't see people arming themselves to go after other churches, but there's where members can't get along and pastors can't get along and congregations are about more sheep stealing instead of reaching out to the darkness and they fight against each other or churches inside, a church might have a split because the members are fighting against each other over silly things and we forget that that's not who our war is against. Our war is not even against the world. 
Our world is, our war is not even against those that are doing kinds of evil. You might say, well, it's evil, yes. But who is the father of all evil? Satan. So those that practice evil are practicing the schemes of the devil. They've been entangled. You know, you mean think of maybe during the times of history of Hitler. Yes, Hitler was an evil man. Hitler did evil things. And yes, the United States had to war against him, but there was more power there involved than just a person wanting power. There were the schemes of the devil. They were there. And we can think only on the schemes of the devil of things like Hitler or things on big sins that are out there. And I think a lot of times that the churches miss the full picture of the schemes of the devil. As John MacArthur talks about, the schemes of the devil are anything that goes against God's word. So let's think about that. So some of the things that go against God's word is like gossip and slander and anger and pride and jealousy and greed and lying. These are sums of the schemes of the devil, yet there are a lot that get looked over. You know, you might hear churches calling for, let's get rid of homosexuality, which, yeah, it's a sin. It's evil. But they might just focus on that and forget that inside their own churches, they've got people gossiping and slander and have fits of anger. You know, schemes of the devil that go against God's word. You might hear the call for the end of prostitution, which, yes, it's evil. But yet, then at the same time, those people are cheating each other out of money or cheating their friends out of lying and and not being truthful with words and cheating them out of money too. You know, those are schemes of the devil. A scheme of the devil is anything that gets us to step away from God's word. If you think about it, not all of Satan's attacks were these great evil sins upon Jesus. He was hungry. He was fasting. Satan says, hey, turn some bread or turn some stones into bread. It wasn't until the third temptation when he said, bow down and worship me. Did everybody see that? But he had him do that. He had him try to test God so that he could jump off the temple so people would know he was God. And Jesus resists those. Another scheme of Satan was Peter. Remember when Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, we're, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. What does Peter say? No, I'm not gonna allow that, Lord. You won't go, you won't die and I will stop that from happening. What did Jesus say to Satan? Get, or get, say to, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because he realized it was a temptation not to fulfill God's plans. The scheme of the devil can be for believers not to tell others about Jesus, not to invite others to church, not to pray the way we're supposed to be praying or to pray at all, maybe not to read our Bibles. Things that keep us from walking with the Lord. These are the schemes of the devil. And so I think we need to have our eyes that we see everything that does not match up with God's word. Everything that, if you look through the 10 commandments, you know, lying, Jesus, God says, do not lie. Lying is breaking it. Honoring your mom and dad. You know, when we have, you know, times when we say, oh, I don't want to do it. I'm going to do my own things. Maybe we did as kids. It's a scheme of the devil. You know, many different ways. And so we got to keep our eyes focused on the scripture. Say, hey, what, what are these schemes? Because a lot of churches have schemes of the devil inside their churches that they don't think they do because they're not the big sins as we would like to label them. And they, don't, they can't understand, why are we not reaching out? Why are things not happening? It's because they haven't taken care of the sin that is in their own lives. In verse 12, it tells us that we are fighting against Satan and the darkness and the forces of darkness. There are people who deny 
attacks of Satan. There's people who deny the attacks of the devil and his demons. We don't want to be those kinds of people. We also don't want to be the people that every time something bad happens, we yell out, it's Satan, he's attacking me, you know, because we are told that in this world, there's just going to be troubles. There's just going to be heartaches because we live in a broken world. Sin still is cursing this world from the beginning of the curse with Adam and Eve. It's still waiting for the day when God's going to come back and make it right. And so a lot of times when people have hardships just from a normal life, they say, oh, it's the devil attacking me. Maybe, maybe it's just actual life, that life is hard. We don't like to talk about that. We love, we love the happy-go-lucky life, but life is hard. Life is unfair. Life is difficult. And it's kind of hard to know what is and what is not always attacks of the devil and his demons. But, you know, at the same time, we shouldn't always have to worry about it and always try to wait, am I being attacked by Satan, am I not? But at the same time, we also need to be aware that there is darkness around us. Aware that when the church starts doing what is right, we should not be surprised when opposition arises. When the church starts standing up for the truth, we should not be surprised when people leave, get upset, try to stop us. Because Satan is not going to allow the truth to go. If you look through Jesus' life, every time he was trying to do something good, you can always see where little things came up and happened. And since, as Jesus says, that they persecuted me, you're going to be persecuted. But take heart, I have conquered the world. And so we need to be aware so we do not get entangled in Satan's snares, but also we don't want to be so concerned that we, we are afraid to leave the house or afraid to do anything. Because he can be vice versa. I mean, there's some people who, you know, I remember when I was growing up as a kid, anybody who saw the number 666, they freaked out. They, they thought it was the end of the world, you know. And I even knew some people who couldn't even, if they were going to have, for some reason, write three sixes, they had to write another number after it, you know, because they were terrified. You know, we don't want to be that crazy, you know. Um, if you see a pentagram, we don't need to freak out or a black cat or something like that. I mean, I know people who are scared if there's any Halloween decorations. Oh, we can't go in there. Oh, it's the devil. And flee, you know. No, we, we don't need to be that paranoid. We just need to be aware. And also, when we come across those that are entangled in Satan's snare, remember who we war against. A lot of times, Christians, I feel like we war against those who are not Christians. We judge them so hard. And where Paul tells us not to do that, and the church in Corinthians, not to judge outside of those who are not saved, because again, they're entangled in the sin. Now, I'm not here to say we excuse sin and allow it to happen, but we need to tell them the only person that can set them free. We need to show them Christ's love, because you and I can't break their habit of sin. You and I can't set them free. That is only Christ. We are the only ones that can, when we see our friends, when we see our families, when we see our strangers, entangled in sin, instead of being harsh on them, especially if they're non-believers, tell them of the gospel. Share with them of Christ's love. Do it in a way that's kind, because that is the only thing that can break Satan's hold and can also help them when they become a Christian resist Satan's temptation. And that's what's going to lead us into the final part here of our sermon, uh, verses 13 through 18. The Christian's armor, as is used here, So Paul writes, starting in verse 13, he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil's days, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, 
with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To the end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. And we're going to walk through here very quickly through these pieces of armor. And because they're going to be ways that we are to know to help us resist Satan and resist the devil or resist the demons and his temptation. And one of the things that we need to note is that if you are a Christian, Satan is going to try to keep you from following Christ. He doesn't want you to come to church. He doesn't want you to read your Bible. He doesn't want you to pray. He doesn't want you to show Christian love and hospitality to others. He doesn't want you to tell others about Jesus because he knows that as soon as someone is saved, he's lost his grips on them. He knows he has lost that soul. And so he's going to do everything in his power that he can to keep you from being what Christ has called you to be. And so the first one is the belt of truth. And a good question that Pilate asked Jesus is, what is truth? Which is a question that a lot of people ask today. And we hear that. And Pilate had a lot of wisdom to ask in John 18, 38, what is truth to the one who is the truth? Yes, what is truth? Even during Pilate's age, he didn't know what is truth. Remember Pilate's being told that Jesus is the king of the Jews, and then he's also being told that he's innocent, and being told, no, he's a rebel rouser, and he's gone against Caesar, and Pilate just didn't know. Remember, Pilate was warned by his wife to not mess with Jesus, and she had a dream about him, that he's innocent. So Pilate's just all confused. And so Pilate asked, what is truth? We live in that today. We have your truth is good for you. My truth is good for me. And that's how a lot of our world wants to operate. You know, we want to say what your truth is, that's great. And then there's my truth. And then there's this person's truth. And as we know, that just leads to even more confusion and hardship and just doesn't help anybody. So what is the belt of truth? What is Paul meaning? Well, we know who the truth is, and that is Jesus. We know that the truth of God comes from his word, from the Bible. So what Paul is saying is, understand the truth of the scripture. Look to the Bible. Now, at that time, they didn't have the full Bible. They had scrolls. And even the church of Ephesus, who knows what synagogues were out there and what Old Testament has. But he's reminding them to hold on to the truth, that Jesus is the way to heaven, that he was and is the son of God, that he died and rose again. And he's encouraging them. And this is the truth that he wants them to hold on to. In Ephesus, there was lots of gods. There was lots of persecution to this church. And there was a lot of hardships that they faced, not just from the Jewish Jews that were there in that area, but even from the Romans that were there, even from the Greeks that were there, because the Rome did not like that the Jews had only one God. And so they put them under the boot and said, okay, fine, you have your one God, you have your temple in Israel, that's good enough. Well, then Christianity comes up. Christianity comes and says, yeah, there's only one God, and we're only going to worship one God. We're not going to worship Romans' gods. We're not going to worship Caesar. And that didn't sit well with Rome. Rome is like, well, if you don't worship our gods, we're going to kill you. That was how they thought they could fix this problem. And so Paul's encouraging them to say, remember the truth that Christ is God, that Christ came, lived a perfect life, died, and rose again. This is the truth. For us, we need God's word daily. So it reminds us of the truth. You know, if we want to know where the truth comes from, we look to the Bible. 
If we want to know what God's standards are, we look to the Bible. This is why we do not look to new revelation or new prophecies because we have the full revelation of prophecies that God gave to us in his word. It is the truth. And also when we fail, and we will, the truth reminds us that we can go back to Jesus for forgiveness. The truth reminds us that Christ still loves us and that he died for us. The Bible helps us to detect lies, lies from those that claim to be Christians but yet are teaching things that don't match the Bible, lies from those that claim to be pastors or maybe there's even those who claim to be prophets but yet they don't match up with the Bible. It helps us detect lies. So the belt of truth here is the Bible. And the greatest truth is that we are washed in Christ's blood and made holy, which moves us on to the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, The breastplate was one of the most important pieces of the armor because it protected the vital organs of the Roman soldier or anybody who was fighting. If you think about it here, the breastplate goes over our hearts. And if you think about how righteousness here he's talking about is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, our righteousness, as we know from Romans, is that of filthy rags. It's not good. So whose righteousness is Paul talking about? It is Christ's righteousness that is imputed or put on us. That's why we cannot pick up Christ's righteousness and put it on us every day because it's already on us. When you became a believer, when you were saved, you were made righteous through Christ. So he's reminding them of Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness is what makes us holy so that when the day comes that we pass away and we stand before Christ, we are not seen as sinners, but holy righteous, just because of what Christ did. Christ's righteousness reminds us of what sin cost and what sin can do to us. When we think about sin, we should remind us that that's what cost Jesus his life. He died for that. He rose again. And if I follow after sin, it's, yeah, we're not going to lose Christ's righteousness. His righteousness is not going to be taken off of us, but we can be entangled into sin. A believer can be. We can find our fellowship with Christ hurt because of sin. And we also know that as Christians, we are to put off the flesh, put off the world. So we say, no, I am not going to live the way of the world because I'm gonna remember Christ's righteousness, this righteousness that is protecting me from anything that's going to put us to death. If you think about it as the breastplate saves soldiers from arrows and swords, Christ's righteousness, his breastplate saves you from your spiritual death. Now, yes, we might all die physically if Christ does not come back but his righteousness saves you from going to hell if you are a believer. If you have been saved, Satan's curse of death cannot penetrate you anymore. It protects you. It gives you that new life, that new transformed life, that when you do pass away, that's not the end. You're in heaven with the Lord. So that is the great thing of this righteousness. And with it, we should be reminded of the gospel of peace, Now, if you think about it, shoes protect our feet. I remember when I went to Africa, one of the things they required for us to wear was boots. And the reason why is because Africa has lots of diseases in the dirt. And one of the fastest ways we were told that you can get sick is through your feet. And so boots protected us from anything poking us, from any snakes getting us, anything out there kept our feet safe. Well, the Romans were really good with their shoes and they had what we would call kind of cleats, but spikes on theirs so their men could stand their ground and not get pushed back. If you think about today, we have all kinds of shoes. You can just get online or go to a store and order any type of shoes that you want. Athletic shoes for sports, shoes for hunting, shoes for work. You can even have shoes to go to the beach. And you can even have special swimwear shoes. You can even have shoes for your house. We have tons of shoes. 
Well, Paul says that the Christian's feet should have the gospel of peace on their shoes. That should be our shoes, the gospel of peace. So the first thing is that it reminds us that the believer, that the Christian is no longer at war with God. That through Christ Jesus, we now have peace. Again, Romans talks about how we are enemies with God before we were saved. But that Christ brought peace. And so we have that. It's a constant reminder. It's a reminder that I can go before my, before my father to his throne boldly. I'm not an enemy. I'm a child. I can come, come to him and be at peace with God. That even when I sin, I can ask Jesus to forgive me of my sins and still have that peace. Also, where we as Christians should go, we should be at peace. We should be being peaceful with one another and being peaceful with the world. Now, with that being stated, we're going to look here real quick at Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 18. And Paul writes in Romans, Repay no one with evil for evil, but give thought to what to do is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And as Paul says here, if possible, live at peace with all. You can be the nicest, kindest person and do everything right and still find it hard to be peaceable with people. It's a fact, unfortunately. I mean, you can go out and pick up trash. You can go clean your neighbor's yard for free. You can open the doors for people. You can even help carry groceries, and you're still going to run into very grumpy, grouchy people who are not going to like you just because you said hi to them, you know, or you looked at them. Um, you, know, you never know what's going to happen. You could be driving along in Kansas City, and you're not going at a pace that people like, and so they honk you their horn and yell at you and, and all. It's not your fault. But Paul is saying we're not to be the ones that are causing the war. We are to be peace, peaceful with all. And so we should not be known as people who are warring. We shouldn't be known as the people that lose our temper. Now, when we do, because again, we're not perfect, you know, one of the ways to show peace is to go back to the person and say, hey, I'm sorry I lost my temper. Hey, I'm sorry that I yelled. And you might have what I've had happen with me with the youth. There's a few times when the youth have pushed my buttons and it's been a long day or it's been a long week at camp and I lose my temper. And I apologize. And a lot of times they're just kind of shocked. They're like, well, why are you saying sorry? We're used to people treating us like this. We're used to this is how we're always treated. And I can say, well, that's not how we're supposed to treat each other. That's not how Christ wants me to treat you. And it's a great way to share the gospel of peace with one another. It's a great way to share love with one another. I also think about, as I was writing this, those that went down to Florida during the disaster relief. You know, many Southern Baptists from all across our states went down there to help out people. And they're being loving. They're being kind. You know, they didn't know these people. They didn't know these people that their houses got destroyed or they got flooded, and they're mucking them out. They're showing love. They're being there taking care of these people during a hard time, and they're showing peace. They're being there. And so when we, you know, think about us as Christians, we should be saying, hey, are my actions peaceful? Am I peaceful with my spouse? Am I being as peaceful as I can be with my kids? Am I being peaceful with my neighbors and with my coworkers and with my peers? When I was in the store today or wherever I went, was I peaceful with the cashier or customer support? As we all love those. If you're like me, customer support is kind of frustrating. Um, I really struggle with those. But I got to remember, hey, it's not their fault that it's this bad. You know, it's not their fault that they can't, they didn't create this problem. They're just there to try to help me. 
And so we go and be peacemakers with the gospel of peace. Again, it's not us that makes peace. It's Christ in us that makes us peace. The next one, a very vital, important, is the shield of faith. If you know anything about, especially the combats during the time of swords, without a shield, you're going to fall very quickly. A shield protected you, especially the Roman shield. The thing weighed about 70 to 75 pounds. Um, They could make it into a formation where they call it the tortoise, and they protected themselves from rocks, arrows, and even other swords. And they could march in and take the wall, or they could march in and push over the enemies. That's how Rome was able to conquer their barbarians. They made walls and would put their shields into the ground and have these walls intact, and the enemy couldn't break through these shields. So Paul's saying the shield of faith, It's kind of interesting if you think about it. What is our shield? Faith. That thing that we cannot see. That thing that all of you are practicing because you had faith that those chairs were going to hold you up. So, you know, you you can put that in practice. You might think about that. Um, But faith, we we cannot see God, but yet we believe in him. That That is faith. So Paul's saying that is our shield. And it's kind of wondering, like, how can the shield of faith Protect us from the fiery darts of Satan. And, you know, Satan's not actually pulling back arrows or throwing these darts of fire at us. Instead, Satan throws things. Each one of us have our own fiery darts that come at us. But one of the biggest ones is doubt. Oh, I can't believe you messed up again. You think Jesus is really going to take you back? This is like your hundredth time you messed up. Do you really think he's going to be okay with you coming back and saying sorry? God doesn't like you anymore. You've messed up too much. He just puts that little bit of doubt. You know, Peter probably thought that, how can Jesus forgive me? I denied him three times. Probably the other disciples. We, we fled. We know that Paul wrestled with his life before a Christian, and even in Romans, even wrestled as a Christian, saying, the things I do not want to do, I do. And the things I'm supposed to do, I don't do. What a horrible, or he says, wretched man am I but thanks be to Jesus Christ. He could have beaten himself down, but he realized who Christ made him be. That's one of the things that the faith reminds us of what the promises are in scripture. That, oh, I messed up in my sin? Yeah, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have told that lie. I shouldn't have lost that temper. I shouldn't have gossiped. I shouldn't have made that look. But you know what? Christ died for that. That's why he took God's wrath. That's why I can't pay for it on my own. That's why I can't get to heaven on my own. That shield of faith. Again, Christ is the only one who can defeat Satan. We need to remember our salvation. It is by faith that we are saved. Think of you at a time when you were not saved. You were not a Christian. You were entangled. Satan had his claws in you. The darts had hit you. You were down. But through faith in Christ alone, you were made whole. You were protected. The darts were removed. And Satan cannot get to you. You know, doubts of salvation. There are those, as we saw a few weeks ago in Jude, there are those Christians that doubt their salvation. Am I really saved? Did, did my salvation last? Those happen, and it's okay to doubt that. But we remember the truth that, yeah, nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, in Romans 8, 38 and 39. That I'm in God the Father's hands, and nothing can pluck me out of that. That we're always saved. Faith. <coughs> and when you meet other Christians 
who they will get down and they might seem like the darts have hit them in the front and the back and everything. It might be you to come along and help them pick up that shield of faith. Remind them of the truth in scripture. Remind them that while they're down and the darts just seem to keep flying, flying onto them, that you can put that shield of faith up and say, hey, let me remind you what the Bible says and restore and help build up their faith. With that comes into the helmet of salvation. And as you know, maybe, you're, maybe you had a mom like mine. Anytime I was to ride my bike, I had to wear my helmet. And, you know, I don't know why now I realize how smart that was of my mom, but when I was a kid, I fought that. I didn't want to wear my helmet, you know. I would rather go out and be like my other friends and not wear a helmet. You know, mom was not trying to be mean. She was trying to protect my head. Helmets are very, very important. There's a reason why we don't use the leather helmets in football anymore. We have actual protection for our players' heads, or same with baseball and all that. We understand that helmet. It protects. But it's kind of interesting that Paul puts salvation as our helmet. If he's saying that this, this is the thing that is protecting your brain in a sense. And also, as you study it, if you think about it, the salvation transforms your mind, your heart. It transforms who you are completely. Paul writes in Romans 12 that we are to be renewed in our mind. Well, how does our mind get renewed? Only through Christ Jesus. Only through his salvation can we get renewed. And again, it's another way to defeat Satan. You know, I don't know about you, but our, my mind can be a place that can be sometimes play the hardest battles on me. You know, it's not other people that get me down, it's myself. You know, always it feels like when you can't sleep at night, those thoughts just bombard you. And I can't believe you said that. You remember that time when you were eight and you did that stupid thing or whatever, you know, fill in the blank or whatever age, or maybe it's just like, can you believe you said that last night? Holy cow, what's wrong with you? You know, our minds can get attacked. There's a lot of people who they will have their minds just seem to be always against them. Now, with this being said, even though that there are people who struggle with doubt, there's people who struggle with depression, there's people who struggle with things in their minds just to say, oh, put on the helmet of salvation, it's not going to help them. It's a constant warfare, a constant attack. You know, if you just say, well, just remember your salvation, everything's going to be okay. Well, in the long run, it might be, but for them there at that time, the battle is real. We know we're not, we can't see the next day. And so we need to remember these truths. Maybe come along and sit with them, you know, but we need to remember our salvation. That I was once an enemy of God, but now Christ bought me and I am a new creature. Yes, I'm gonna make mistakes. That's why Christ died for me. Yes, I am going to fail Christ, but that's okay. That's why, again, he died for me. And also the helmet of salvation reminds us to be the gospel of peace. That, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a creation. I'm a new creation through Christ. Those other people, they need Jesus. I need to go out and tell them. And so Paul, as he leaves the helmet to second to the last, it's a very important piece as we look at it. Again, all this is on us because you can't wake up every morning and say, oh, I gotta put on my salvation because you already have it. You know, I can't put on my righteousness because it doesn't work. I can't put on my faith. It was only through the Holy Spirit that took my dead heart and regenerated me and made me have saving faith. As it tells us, we were lost and Christ is the one where found us. We were enemies and Christ is the one who made us at peace, you know. But these are things that come with us as reminders. He's reminding this church. He's reminding us. And we need to remind ourselves. When we wake up some mornings and we feel horrible, even though we say, hey, you know what? Christ died for me. The horrible feelings might not always go away. The horrible feelings might not make us say, well, just because I said Christ saved me, it's still dark. Yes, 
There's days it's still going to be dark, but Christ still loves you even in your darkest moment. The last weapon, um, the offensive weapon, all these other things are defensive. The belt of truth, all the defensive. This is the first offensive weapon that you see. The sword of the spirit. And so, again, in this time, if a soldier had everything but a sword, you know, he can protect himself with a shield, but it's going to be very hard to knock down his enemy and stop his enemy from just attacking him. Sword is very important. And the Roman sword at this time was anywhere between six to eight feet, and it was considered a, a short sword. Um, and it was a very sharp two-edged sword, which is what the writers of Hebrews says the word of God is. And that's what he's talking about, the sword of the Spirit, the Bible, the Scriptures, the only thing that can bring down our enemies. If you notice, it's not our words that brings down our enemies. It's not the words of a friend or a pastor. It is only the living, active word of God that can bring down the enemies. If you think about Satan's temptation, what did Jesus use to defeat Satan? God's word, the Pentateuch, the law. He went back to that. Even though he was God, he knew that the only way to defeat Satan was through his father's word that was spoken through the prophets and through Moses. And that's what he used. That came through the Holy Spirit. That's why God has given us his word, the Bible. It convicts us. It changes us. It brings comfort to us. As again, I mentioned Hebrews, it says it pierces deeper than any sword. It brings conviction to those that are lost. So is the Bible. This is why it's important to read the Bible. This is why it's important to hear biblical preaching, to sing biblical songs, and to have Bible studies, not just on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings, but constantly. Now, there's nothing wrong with listening to secular music. It's okay. Don't hear me say you only have to listen to Christian music. But it's good to find good, rich theological songs that can remind us of biblical truth in God's word. You can never have too much Bible or study the Bible too much. No matter how old you are, you can never hear the Bible too much. And we gotta remember that the Bible is defeating Satan, not us. It's not us. It is God through his word. So with all this, take comfort. We have been equipped to be able to stand against Satan and his dark schemes. We're not alone. We have been equipped and the last thing that I think a lot of people, I know when I was a kid, when you hear the armor of God, they, they miss verse 18. And really, again, I want to show verse 18 really here as it says. Look on the screens. It says, praying at all times in the spirit and with all prayer and supplication. To the end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And as we get ready here for our prayer meeting, Paul, as he's writing this and ending on the armor of God, he says, Praying is another thing that he added here that is important for Christians. We are to read the Bible and we are to pray. And not just pray for ourselves, but praying at all times. So anytime we can, where Paul says, you know, pray without ceasing, praying at all times and all prayers and supplication. So we are to be praying and asking. That's why we do prayer requests. It's, it's important. It's commanded. It's good. Not only that, to the end, keep alert with all perseverance. And again, making supplication for all the saints. Who are the saints? They aren't just the 13 apostles, if you want to put it that way. You and I are saints. As Paul points out in in 1 Corinthians, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord and is saved is a saint. So Paul's saying, pray for all the believers. Get prayer requests. 
pray for each other. And he goes on in verse 19, he actually says, and pray for me, pray that I have boldness while I'm in jail. It's hard to think that Paul wasn't bold, but he says that, pray for me, that I have boldness while I sit here in this dark, gloomy prison. So we need to be praying, not just praying on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. Those are great. We should always have prayer, but Monday through Saturday, always prayer. So as I have studied here at the armor of God and learned more about it, that you know, it's something that's already on us. I hope it has enriched you and hope that you realize that God has equipped you to stand against the dark times that we're facing. God has equipped you and he hasn't left you alone. What a great God that we serve. That even though as Paul put this in a idea that we could understand, a metaphor that we could understand is how the Lord works through us with the Holy Spirit and equipping us. And so now here we're gonna get ready to come to our time of prayer. So will you join me as we close in prayer and then we'll move on to our gathered prayer time. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your word. I do thank you for this section in Ephesians. I do thank you for the men that you had to write your word that you inspired. We know that this idea that Paul had to write about the armor of God came from you. Thank you for equipping us. Thank you for giving us the armor of God, that we didn't do anything to receive it, that you put it upon us. It is through your son's death. It is through the Holy Spirit that comes into us. So thank you. Help us, as Paul says, to be on a look for the things of this world that can attack us, that we be ready. Be with us now as we get ready to pray for those that are hurting and those that are not even a part of our body, but are outside the church that are hurting, even those that are lost. So Lord, just help us as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We're gonna come here.